Well, what does success in ministry look like? Over the last few weeks, we've been thinking about the local church and thinking about local church ministry. And of course, ministers are a part of that. Last week, we said what makes a successful minister, but what makes a successful ministry? If we were to evaluate this ministry or any other ministry, what is it that it should look like? What is it that we should look for in order to measure it and say that is successful? Well, thankfully, we don't have to look very far. We can look to our own denomination. What does our own denomination say is successful? Uh, after all, what they say we should pay attention to, what should be increased, what we should do more of, must be what is deemed successful. The ones that they highlight, the ones that they celebrate, the pastors by whom and the churches that they spotlight through articles must be those that are successful. What was it about them that gave and rose the attention that they got? It's often said that successful ministry is three things. Baptisms, budgets, and butts. That's right. More baptisms, a bigger budget, more people. Under a year, in June, the Southern Baptist Convention convenes in some geographic location here in the United States. And every single one of them that I've attended over the last 15 years has had a similar theme. We need to baptize more people. We need to save more people. We need to give more money. Bigger is better. More must mean successful. Friends, this is no more than worldly thinking. Just because it's successful, or just because it's popular, rather, doesn't mean it's successful. Just because a lot of people go to it doesn't mean that it's right. Some of you remember a, a gathering called Woodstock. A lot of people there. It doesn't mean it was right. I mean, it was good. Just because a lot of people are doing something doesn't... I mean, don't we teach our kids this principle? Just because everybody else does it doesn't mean you should do it, Johnny. Bigger isn't always better. Often in my conversations with pastors, they're discouraged. They want to give up. They want to quit because of this particular question. Because they haven't baptized anybody in the last year. Because their numbers just seem to be plateaued or somewhat declining. Of course, during COVID, uh, this has only been exacerbated. This has only seemed to, to grow. So many pastors find their identity in how many people gather on the Lord's Day. How much their budget is. Sure, no doubt Pastor Rod could attest to this. Anytime pastors get together, sadly, one of the questions that always comes up is, hey, how many people are you running? How many people are, are, are coming to your church? How, I mean, I, I'm just asking, I was just curious, how, how many people you have? As if that's some indicator of success. Do we realize that there are some churches that are growing because God is really at work, moving, and there is genuine revival? And there are also churches that are growing because they are giving themselves to worldly means 
in order to attract people to some prototype of the gospel, some anti-gospel message? What makes a successful church isn't necessarily that it's growing or that there's more of it. This is the question I want in your mind as we think about this text this morning. But before we do, I want to remind us of where we've been. Paul has made clear in these chapters that the mystery of godliness is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, the only way that one can become godly is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The false teachers had given themselves to asceticism. Uh, This teaching that if I just restrain myself, if I just keep myself from certain things, then I will become more godly. Paul says, no, not at all. It is rather through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and only that means by which God is using to bring people to himself and transform them into his image. And it was then, Paul says, the local church that is the foundation, the stewardship, the one who is to steward this truth of the gospel. And Paul warned these false teachers and warned Timothy of them. And he said that these false teachers were influencing the church, not only from without the church, but as we'll see, even from within the church. Imagine Paul is sending young Timothy who seems to be somewhat timid in nature, down to a church in Ephesus where the false teachers aren't in the pews, but in the pulpit. They're in the elders board. They're they're in the leadership of the church. The problem wasn't in the church. It was the leadership of the church. And Timothy had to go down there and preach the true gospel. It was in this context in which Paul exhorts young Timothy not to allow his youth to be a barrier to gospel ministry. He had a difficult challenge before him in that he was young. Every pastor, every church I've pastored, I have been young in, even in even today. I, in, in most of our congregation's eyes, I'm quite young. I'm the age of your grandchildren, not just your children. That's huge. As we think about this truth and, and sort of the situation and this really insurmountable enemy of false teaching and even trying to guide and lead a church by which some of the people are twice, three times your age. It would only be, as we see for Timothy, by God's grace that he could bring about genuine gospel change. Well, if Timothy couldn't change his age, couldn't make himself look older or sound older, what was he to do? Well, that's what we're going to think about here in 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 through 16. So I invite you to turn there if you haven't done so already. But again, have in your mind that question, what does success in ministry look like? Paul writes, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, or rather in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, When the council of elders laid their hands on you, 
Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. A successful gospel ministry is one that remains committed to the godliness among the saints and a commitment to the centrality of the word in the life of the congregation. In other words, it can't be measured. It's not measurable. You can't measure godliness on on a scale of one to ten. There's no metric by which, and that's why so often baptisms and numerical things are given, because it's a metric. You can measure it, but you can't measure how, how much the Bible is centered in the life of the church. There's no scale in which you could do that on. It's only visible, isn't it? Through lives changed through the power of the preached word. And by lives lived before one another. So this morning, I want us to evaluate the success of ministry from a biblical standard. I want us to take our understanding of what we should be doing as a local church, what kind of pastors you should have leading you through this example, through this text this morning. And so this morning, I want us to consider this question, how are pastors to successfully lead their congregations? If we were to evaluate pastoral ministry and say, all right, it's that time of year, time for evaluation time. How did you do this year? And we were going to evaluate pastors. What metric would we use first? Were they godly examples to the flock? Secondly, did they devote themselves to the ministry of the word? And number three, were they watchful over their life and doctrine? These are the three aspects we see of successful leadership in these verses. So let's look at them again. How is a pastor to successfully lead? By being an example to the flock. Look here at verse 11 and 12. Paul says, command and teach these things. These things is a reference to what he's just mentioned in these previous verses. That he's not to give himself to silly myths. He's he's to rather train himself for godliness. He's to teach and to preach He is to do these things. He is to be a gospel man. I want you to notice something about what Timothy says. Now remember, Timothy's a young man, but he is to command and to teach. Now in this particular culture, um, only those who were older were considered elders, leaders, those who were much older in age, much advanced in age, not too different than our own culture. Often age often begets leadership, right? But notice that Timothy was to command and teach who? People much older than him. He was to command a group of people that were twice his age. He was to lead them by teaching them. Notice what we learn here. Let no one despise you for your youth. Now, most scholars would would argue that he's probably around the the age of his mid-30s which would have been very young for someone to lead in that culture. It would have been very unheard of. But Timothy, nonetheless, was to command and to teach those who were much older than him. And there could have been this temptation on Timothy's part to be somewhat timid, to say, oh, who am I to teach these people? They know everything. 
But Paul had to remind him, no, you have a task before you. You were to command and to teach. Well, how was he to do that? Notice what he says. He says, listen, don't, be, don't let someone despise you for your youth, but rather set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In other words, you will be an example that cannot be argued with. You need to be so confident in what you believe in, they can't argue with who you are. In other words, be a, an example to those around you. Of course, this is Paul's ethic in which he taught all the churches. He used to tell the church in Corinth all the time. He says, listen, here's what I want you to do. Follow me as I follow Christ. And what he's doing here to young Timothy is, is no different. He's saying, Timothy, here's what you need to do. I want you to go down there and be an example to the flock. Go down there and says, listen, follow me as I am following Christ. So Timothy was to be an example to the flock. He wasn't to worry about his age, to worry about whether or not he could command a crowd, but rather he is to devote himself to his character. Notice here Paul lists five different characters that he was to give himself to. First, he was to give himself to speech. What he, he, he said mattered. His words mattered. Timothy was to be trustworthy. We saw earlier in the qualifications, elder, one who's not double-tongued. Doesn't merely mean that he's not a gossip, but that he speaks the truth. He's a truth-teller. Nothing undermines one's ability to teach others than the fact that sometimes they lie. More than that, they were to be one who was wholesome in speech. Words that weren't tear others down. You know, so often leaders are tempted to lead by tearing others down in front of them, and they often use their words to do that. But Timothy's speech was to be seasoned with salt. More than that, we see that his conduct was to be in check. The word conduct really literally means his way of life, his lifestyle. He was to set an example, not only in his speech, but in how he lived. He was to show people what it looked like to follow Christ. And also in his love. He was to demonstrate gospel love, sacrificial love. He was to be a model for love for the saints. One of the mottos of the replant team at the North American Mission Board and what we hope to instill in, in pastors that go into dying churches is four things. They, we, four commitments to preach, pray, love, and stay. A commitment to preaching the gospel, a commitment to praying, and a commitment to loving and that love demonstrates that itself out in discipleship relationships, in, in community. You know, so often pastors despise the flock. They, they, they want a different flock because they don't want to deal with the broken flock that's in front of them. They think the grass is greener. And so they just, they just sit around and toil their fingers until the, the right flock comes along. Well, that ain't ever going to happen. Um, and so they get discouraged and they move on to the next church. Did you know the average pastorate in the, in the Southern Baptist Convention is two and a half years? Brian Croft, pastor in uh, Aberdeen, Aberdeen Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, he says that, uh, he says that uh, most pastors leave before year four because year four is when uh, the pastor realizes how much of a mess of a church he has, and it's also the same time his church realizes how much of a mess of a pastor they hired. <laughs> and there is truth in that. Like, that guy's messed up. 
When you be a model of love, love stays, doesn't it? Love sticks, love perseveres, love is patient. We know these things. In faith, he was to be an example in his faith. He was to be faithful. When everyone else seems to be falling, he was to be a steady hand, a firm grip. He was to be the one who was unwavering. This is why Paul will tell Timothy in 2 Timothy, be slow. Or rather, at the end of this of, of 1 Timothy, be slow with the laying on of hands. Why? Because you want a steady hand. Not a hand that's a fickle hand. Not one that's easily blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. My goodness, I served with a guy one time. Um, anytime he went to the bookstore, to the Christian bookstore, he would come up with some new program due for the church. I told him, my goodness, you're just being blown all over the place. Will you just stick with the word? I trust me, it will be all right. Um, you don't need that. Discipleship program is not going to change this church. Jesus died to transform his church. He does, doesn't need that. We need to be faithful. We need to be steady hands. They need to be a model of faith when everyone seems to be lacking it. Finally, needs to be an example in purity. The idea here in purity is not just merely, generally rather, moral purity, but the, the language that Paul uses in this Greco-Roman context, and particularly in a Greek culture, would have been sexual purity. One who's above reproach in this particular area. You would be staggered at the statistics of sexual immorality among pastors. It's staggering. And it's a wonder why it's such an epidemic in our churches. He was to be an example. Look, it is so true. The way the pastor goes, so goes the church. It is so true. In both positively and negatively. It is so true. You show, show me a church that's evangelistic. I bet you there's a pastor that leads that church that's evangelistic. It's so true. A worldly pastor leads to a worldly church. And, and Paul knew that. He knew that the way to transform the culture of the church was through the character of the pastorate. That's why he sends Timothy down there. He knew Timothy. He lived with Timothy. He, they slept in tents together. They knew what kind, he knew what kind of man Timothy was. And all he is saying is, look, I don't want you to become those things. Just continue to be those things. That's the language he uses. Look there again at verse 12. He says, set the believers an example. He does not say become an example. He says set an example. This is who you already are, Timothy. Just put it on display for all to see. Boy, doesn't this kind of run against the pastorates where the pastors are all kind of doing their little holy huddles by themselves and they don't live among their sheep? It's a temptation. Brothers and sisters, we ought to, I believe, marvel at this passage about how Christ has chosen to build his church. He does not use the strong but the weak. He doesn't use the great leader. Again, he sends timid Timothy down there to deal with a very, very difficult issue. And he does so. He says, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to give yourself in, into some church growth movement. I don't want you to give your, some quick gimmicks. I want you to just go down there and I want you to live among them. I want them to see the way you pray and the, the way you care for your family. I want, you to, I want them to see your purity of heart and the love you have for them and the sacrifice and the way that you've stuck with them through thick and thin. That's what I want them to see because you need to be an example because they will only see Jesus as they see you. 
You see, what would set Timothy apart from the false teachers would be his character. And so it's true today, brothers and sisters. God uses common servants, everyday men and women, to build his church. Paul had trained up men to carry on after them. Friends, we just see this as a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of Paul training up Timothy, calling him to righteousness and to godliness, and then sending them in there and saying what? Do the same. Replicate yourself. That's what gospel ministry is. It's about all of us collectively together calling people to follow Jesus as we ourselves are following Jesus. That is what the gospel is all about. Younger men being trained up by older men. Younger women being trained up by older women. God uses his church to train the next generation. We want to invest ourselves in the lives of one another. That means you need to be willing to be invested in. This is why I commend you having conversations, staying late after church, having conversations with one another, having conversations, living life together. Friend, this morning, perhaps you're not a Christian, but yet you yourself aspire to some of these attributes you see in young Timothy. Friend, I hope you see that none of these characteristics are possible apart from the saving work of Christ. You see, the gospel only brings about godliness. And you too can be godly through the gospel by repenting and believing in Christ Jesus. Your hope and our hope must solely be in Jesus. See, pastors successfully lead their congregations by being an example to the flock. Pastors ought to give themselves to being godly. Secondly, we see here. That what makes a successful pastoral ministry is one that is devoted to the ministry of the word. Look here at verses 13 and 14. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy was told to devote himself to some things. Now, Paul was delayed in going down to Ephesus. There was, some, there was some time. That didn't mean Timothy was to just sit around and wait for Paul to show up. Rather, he was to move into action. He was to devote himself. He was to have a word-centered ministry. The idea to devote is to give attention to, to pay particular attention to these things. I think these are instructive things. Look at them again. To the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. What job did, did Paul give Timothy? Well, he gave him the job of reading the scripture publicly. You see, this would have been the only time the congregation would have ever had the benefit of hearing God's word. They didn't have little pocket Bibles. They didn't have Bible apps in the backs of their pockets they could pull out and read. They didn't even have Bibles of their own. The only opportunity they had would have been through the gathering and to hear the scriptures read. And so Paul says, listen, I want you to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture I want you to give yourself to, to reading. But then notice what he says to exhortation and to teaching. The idea here in this particular passage is that of preaching and teaching God's word. We often use the language around here of expositional preaching, right? It's not that there's, there's all these different types of preaching and we just found our favorite one and it's called expositional. No, what we believe it's, it's biblical preaching. It's simply this. We take the point of the passage, all right? 
We seek to understand what is the point of the passage. What is it that the biblical author's point is? And we apply it to our lives today in the 21st century. So we seek to know God, what he is saying, and we seek to apply it to our life. Well, what does Paul say here? He says, you take a passage of scripture and you read it, and I want you to exhort it, and I want you to teach it. Now, exhortation is this aspect of application. It is actually exhorting people to action. Do you know the gospel calls us to action? Every gospel appeal ought to call for a response. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not merely a a, a data dump or a data transfer. I I give you some information, you take it, and you you assess it. No. It begs a response. You either believe or you don't believe. You either repent or you don't repent. There's no neutral response to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You either believe or you don't. If Jesus says, thou shalt not commit adultery, you either choose willingly to obey or you choose not to there's no like middle road and so when one adequately preaches and teaches there must be then adequate time given to appropriate application to our contemporary context this is what paul says listen i want you to go down there timothy i want you to preach i want you to teach and i want you to apply i want you to call people to action the word command brothers and sisters means to tell someone what to do all right and i I, look i find it incredibly refreshing you don't i mean i I just i don't words sometimes just escape me to see a senior adult saint listening to a 30 something year old tell them how to follow jesus and they listen and obey there's something sweet that's the mystery of the gospel brothers and sisters something glorious there's no one in this world that would sit and listen to some 30 year olds what do they know at least rod's in his 40s a little older goodness gracious what do they know what do they know But see, listen, because it's not what we know. Look what he says. He says, I want you to take the scripture, not not your own philosophy, Timothy, not. I want you to take the scripture and I want you to exhort them and teach them the scripture. That's why it works. That's how it works is we don't have anything really innovative and new to say. We just have to package it in a way that you can understand it and apply it to your life. That's so, we're, just da- we're just transfers. We're just conduits of the word. That's how we remain centered on the word. We give ourselves to the word. It, it, we're not sitting in our offices. Pastor Rod and I had a meeting yesterday. We weren't you know, sitting around like, you know, what are we talking? What are we going to talk about? Where are we going to go? What, what's going to be? No, we're just going to. What are we? All right, Lord, what do you have in your word for us? That's all we got. I ain't got nothing else. I got no bags of tricks. I have no gimmicks. I just have a word. That's it. And not my word, not some new word from the Lord, not something God told me in a dream, but what he said right here in this word. Amen. He goes on to say here, not to neglect. So he's devote himself to it, but he's also not to neglect it. 
Notice what he says, verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have. Now, Timothy might have been tempted to say, oh, I'm not, uh, I don't know. I don't know, Paul, this, this is a tough crowd. You don't understand. These folks are much older than me. Plus, we have, you know, I'm getting these scowl faces from these other uh, pastors in the church who are teaching a different doctrine than me. I don't think I can do it. And so Paul comes along and he says, I want to remind you of two things, Timothy. Number one, it's a gift. You use it or you lose it, son. The word is charisma. It is a gift from God. It was Timothy was to understand that this preaching ministry, this word-centered ministry was a gift from God. It was something given to him. It was, it was something he was to steward. It wasn't something, I mean, nobody signs up to be a pastor. I mean, if you do, you're a goof. There's something wrong with you, right? I remember when I was a youth pastor, I tell this, I remember when I was a youth pastor years ago, I'd have, I'd have parents come to me, well, we need to do more you know, games and events and all that kind of stuff as youth ministry. I said, y'all, this ain't no YMCA. The YMCA pays way better than this, all right? If I wanted to run events, I'd work at the YMCA. This is a church. We ain't an event organization. You know, so, but right, I mean, there's other things that, you know, if you could do anything else, go do that, right? Surely nobody's doing it for the money. Nobody's doing it because they get a lot of sleep, you know, restful nights. No, not at all. They do it because they're called. Called by God. We see first here that they're called by God, both in the gifting and then also in the public manifestation of this gift, which was given you by prophecy. So there's some prophetic word there. We don't know really much detail, and I don't think Paul wants us to have it. Because Paul would once understand, like Timothy, you know the event, Timothy, you remember, you, you, there was a prophetic word. Uh, as the reader, we're to understand, and I think particularly, remember, the false teachers were hearing this too, right? They were listening. Timothy, you've been called by God. You've been gifted by God. And, and there was a prophetic word that this is your call that is on your life. It's from God. So, so Timothy was to have confidence in knowing that God has called him. So he's not to neglect this gift, but rather embrace it and steward it. He's to continue to preach and teach God's word, not because he has something great to say, but because God's called him to speak. And remember, God even uses donkeys to speak for us. And so it wasn't because something special in Timothy, something unique in Timothy, like somehow he was God's gift to, to the church. And you think, you think people really think like that? Yeah, just I, I'll take you to a seminary, any one of our seminaries, and there's a classroom filled of kids who think that. Not at all. But notice here, secondly, not only was there this divine source, we see there was also affirmation from the church. When the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now what we see here in the laying on of hands is a particular affirmation. It wasn't anything mystical or weird. All right, it, What it was is the elders were publicly affirming that this brother is being set apart for gospel ministry. In other words... You know, a lot of times we talk about call to ministry. You know, my call to ministry. I feel this call to ministry. And, and so often, you know, you'll, I'll get people come in. And be like, I'm a pastor. Well, that's okay. That's fine. Um, you know, no, no, no. We need to understand that it's not only this divine call, this what we would call the inward call, but also the outward affirmation of that call. All right? In other words, we 
affirmed, the congregation affirmed through the elders who the pastors were and who the pastors weren't. You don't just like get to raise your hand and say, I'm going to be a pastor without public affirmation from other Christians. This is a very important point, and particularly as Baptists, why we don't hold to some ordination process. Because it is the local church that has the power, not the denomination, to ordain or set apart. It is the local church. And so we want to affirm by the laying on of hands, by publicly declaring, we believe this brother has been set apart for gospel ministry. And did you know that hands can be withheld too? And removed. And sadly, sometimes that happens. Word-centered ministry must be part and parcel to the life of our congregation. Period. This means not only a commitment to the regular preaching of God's word, which we are committed to here, to the regular preaching of God's word. That means what we do on the Lord's day is preach the word. But not only that, it is that the word of God regulates all aspects and areas of ministry in the life of our church. We don't just say, hey, we want to do this. Let's see if God's word allows us to do that. Rather, we say, what does God's word say we should be doing? Then we do those things. You see the posture is a little different there. You know, it's saying, oh, God only regulates, you know, sin. Well, no, he, God kind of cares about how he's worshipped, all right? Um, he kind of does, all right? There's some f- fellows in the Old Testament you can ask if, uh, how they felt whenever they brought um, fire, you know, perhaps. They thought it was a little, in, they had some, you know, in, ingenious ways of approaching God with some strange fire. And, uh, well, they, they uh, died right then and there. Um, well, see... We just can't approach God any old way. We need to know God has not left us without a guide. He's told us how we are to do church, what we ought to give ourselves to. And I reiterate this again, brothers and sisters, that it just gets ingrained in your mind. Did you know that everything we do today in this service was commanded in Scripture? We didn't do one thing outside of the announcements that was not commanded in Scriptures. Everything that we did was commanded. Nothing was our own ingenuity, our own thoughts. It was all regulated by God's word. Furthermore, we ought to see that every aspect of our life together should be permeated by the word. That means that in our conversations with one another, oh, we ought to have the word quick upon our lips. We ought to encourage one another with scripture. Of course, the pastors want to set an example in this, to constantly be counseling with the word. But we want to see... That we ought to exhort one another with the words of Christ. This is what Christ Jesus did. When he called his disciples to follow him, he pointed them to the word. We ought to see the authority of God's word in the life of God's people. God's word is our only authority for faith and practice. So pastors successfully lead their congregations by being an example of godliness and devoting themselves to the ministry of the word. The regular preaching of the word of God is the spark, brothers and sisters, that gives life to the church. Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Friend, do you lack faith? Do you lack, do you you have doubt? Then sit under the regular preaching of God's word here every Lord's day and God promises you that he will give you faith. Thirdly and finally here, 
A successful pastoral ministry and leadership is those who are watchful of their life and doctrine. Notice here, brothers and sisters, that this is important for your soul just as it's for our souls. Good pastoral ministry matters for the member. Look at what he says. Verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul says to Timothy, practice your faith with a purpose. Let others see your progress. The, the, the Christian life is a life of progress. It is one degree of glory to the next. We are not perfect. Pastors are not perfect. You will never find a perfect pastor. Uh, and if you do, run as far as you can. Because it's just the devil masquerading as an angel of light. Pastors aren't perfect. That doesn't mean they don't strive for holiness and perfection. We do. But we see there ought to be a life lived in front of others. Timothy was to give his whole self to the work of ministry, not in a way that would neglect his family, but in a way that had purpose. He was to practice, to cultivate, to improve himself through study for the work of ministry. He says, he says practice these things, immerse yourself in it. Literally, he says, be these things. Spurgeon said, of course, famously, that if you cut me, I bleed the Bible. And it was this picture that he had so just sort of devoured the word of God that it just sort of permeated his body, that, that he bled the Bible. It's what he was. He was so committed to the life of the local church. In other words, let me just say this sad truth, that pastoral ministry is not a job, a, a nine to five, but it's a life lived. For God's glory. That's the kind of elders that we want to cultivate here in our church. Those who are committed not only to their families, to serve their families well, and to live as good citizens of this land, but also to so invest themselves in gospel ministry that they practice them. Timothy was not perfect, but he was to grow in perfection a way that people could see growth. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you see that in our lives. Uh, as pastors, our growth. If you think, my goodness, I don't know if you've grown very much, Pastor Chris. Here's what you ought to do. Uh, go back to 2015 and listen to some of those sermons when I first came here. They're not very good. Um, <laughs> we all have room to grow. But we see also, secondly, here in this passage, the pastors are to be watchful for the sake of perseverance. He says, keep, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist. Why? For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The word persist there is the word to persevere. To watch or to persist carries the idea that what is needed is that of perseverance, endurance, steadiness. Timothy was to be a steady hand at the helm, as we've already mentioned. A steady hand guiding them home. Notice here what he says that by doing so you'll save both yourself and your hearer. Now, Paul is, of course, not teaching that pastors save church members. Of course, he's not teaching that. The gospel is through Jesus, through the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. He's 
he's not saying salvifically, but he is saying in the way that an evangelist, you know, leads people to Christ. So pastors lead Christians home. They have a particular role to help you get to heaven. That's our responsibility. We will answer before Jesus for that. There's coming a day where, where all the pastors in all the world that have ever shepherded a congregation will stand before Jesus and one by one will have a judgment day, particularly for them. This is why, Tim, this is why James says, hey, if you want to be a teacher, I would rethink it. Because, because those who teach are judged doubly. Paul warns young Timothy, listen, you need to remain watchful because the souls in your care You'll save them. Remember what I said about faith coming by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. He's to remain committed to preaching the gospel so as to continue to feed out faith to his people. Starving churches is because their pastors starve them. The question for you this morning, Christian, is who are you following? I pray that we are worthy examples for you to follow. This is why I just want to exhort you to regularly pray for us. Period. You don't do anything else for us? Pray for us. Period. I mean, seriously pray. Pray that we would watch and guard our hearts. Pray also that God would continue to raise up godly elders. Men from, from within this own congregation or from without that would be godly examples. We need godly examples. We don't need leaders for leaders' sake, but those who are worthy of emulation. And friend, if God ever called you from this place and you're looking for a new church, shouldn't this be the, the guide by which you evaluate? I mean, he might be a great preacher, but he's a good example to follow. We ought to live in such a way so that others may see our progress. We ought to be growing as Christians. We ought to continue calling others to continue to go up and, and strive more and to be more and more like Christ. And we ought to be guarding our lives. Church, it is a temptation for us to use the world's assessment on whether or not someone's qualified to be a pastor in a local church, to be a fellow elder. But we ought to give ourselves not to the world's standards, but to these characteristics, to these behaviors, to these Pictures of a faithful gospel preacher. A successful ministry is a guarded ministry. A ministry that's guarded from the word. You, brothers and sisters, ought to know that just as much as pastors know that. John Bunyan, in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, tells the story and the journey of, of Christian and his journey to the celestial city. And along his journey, he comes across a man by the name of Interpreter. An interpreter and him have a, a bit of an exchange. An interpreter says, hey, uh, young Christian, I want to I show you something as you set out on your journey of the Christian life. And as you seek to make your way to the celestial city, I want you to, I want you to meet somebody. So he, that is interpreter, this is Bunyan, had him into a private room and bid his man open a door, that which he had done. And Christian saw the picture, saw a picture on a wall. Of a very grave person hanging against the wall. And this was the fashion of it. 
So there he is, Christian's in this room, this dark room. He sees a picture on the wall, and he begins to see the, the portrait and take evaluation of the portrait. Began to think about what, what is this man doing in this picture? And, and this man pictured on this, on this portrait is, is his eyes lifted up to heaven. He has the best books in his hands. The law of truth was written upon his lips, and the world was behind his back. It stood as if he was pleading with men, and a crown of gold did hang over his head. And then Christian said to the interpreter, what does this mean? An interpreter said this, the man whose picture this is, is one of a thousand. He can beget children, travel in birth with children, and nurse them himself when they are born. And whereas you see them with his eyes lifted to heaven, the best of books in his hands and the law of truth written upon his heart is to show you that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners. Even as you see the standard as if he pleads with men and whereas you see the world cast behind him and the crown that hangs over his head, that it is that he shows you that siding and the despising the things that are present for the love that he has for his master's service. He is sure that the world that is to come is next to have glory for his reward. Now, said the interpreter, I have shown you the picture at first. This man's picture that it is, is the only man whom the Lord of this place where you are going has authorized you to guide you in all difficult places. And to show you the way of eternal life. Wherefore, take good heed. To what I have showed you and bear mind if you see him lest in your journey to meet some others who pretend to lead you the right way. And only, he says, lead you down the way of death. What Christian witness was the portrait of a gospel minister, one who is faithful and committed and devoted in his life to be an example to the flock who has had those books about him, the word. He had a central, a gospel-centered ministry and one who was watchful over his soul because he knew that he cared for the souls of men. And he had eternity before his eyes. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would continue to do the work you've called us to do for your glory and particularly to raise up godly men who would be an example to this flock. Father, my prayer, my pleading is that myself, Pastor Rod, and all those that you would call to lead this congregation might be examples worthy of emulation. Not because we are worthy in and above ourselves. There's nothing worthy in us. We are yet just jars of clay. But Father, I pray that we might faithfully follow Christ and call others to do the same. For your glory we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.